0: From the Heidelberg Catechism, let's read together Lord's Day Eight, page five hundred and twenty-four of your Book of Praise. How are these articles, that's the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith, divided into three parts? The first is about God the Father and our creation. The second about God the Son and our redemption. The third about God, the Holy Spirit, and our sanctification. Since there is only one God, why do you speak of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one true, eternal God. beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 1973, J.I. Packer wrote a famous book titled, Knowing God. The reason why he wrote this book is because he was convinced that ignorance of God lay at the root of many of the church's troubles in his day. Packer noticed two trends in the society of his day. The first was that the Christian minds have been conformed to the modern spirit A spirit that spawns great thoughts of man, but only small thoughts of God. The second was that Christian minds have been confused by modern skepticism, in order that within the theological, philosophical, and scientific realms, people have been denying the truths about who God is and what he has done. The question we face is can we? know God. As weak and sinful creatures, is it possible for us to know Almighty God? In Lord's Day, we speak about who God is. Normally, when we want to describe something unknown to us, we compare it with something we know. But when we speak about God... We have nothing with which to compare him. In chapter 40, Isaiah asks, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him? God is far beyond our comprehension. It's confirmed by what the Lord says about himself in Isaiah 55. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Thus we should realize we are limited in our understanding of God. Yet the fact that our understanding about God is limited does not mean that we cannot know God. In Lord's Day 7, we spoke about Faith. True faith includes a sure knowledge whereby we accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, it is a wholehearted trust that the promises of God apply to my life. The content of our faith is God's promise in the gospel. Lord's Day 7 Taught us that this promise is summarized in the Apostles' Creed. It speaks about the works of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and of how they relate to our lives. The point, beloved, is that God does not just promise anything to us, He promises Himself to us. The Lord spoke to Abraham, the father of all believers. He said, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. The Lord Jesus said that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. He said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The Holy Spirit is described in Scripture as the Comforter whom Christ sent to dwell in our hearts. On the basis of the testimony of Scripture, we believe in a triune God, that there is one God who is made up of three distinct persons. This is not just some abstract theological doctrine the basis of our faith. We see this in the promises that God makes to us at our baptism. Promising to be our Father, to care for us and provide all our needs. Assuring us that the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross is enough to wash away all our sins. Confirming that he will dwell in us through the, through the Holy Spirit. Renewing us. Thus, our faith and trust are directed to the triune God. To believe in Him, to be comforted by His promises, we need to know who this God is. I preach you the Word of God under the following theme. We, have great, we may draw great comfort from the relationship we have with our triune God. Consider our comfort from knowing God as our Father our comfort from knowing God as our Savior, and our comfort from knowing God as our Sanctifier. This afternoon we read together from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. In the first 11 verses of chapter 1, Paul uses five different words to describe the trouble he and Timothy were in. He talks about their affliction, suffering, their being burdened beyond strength, despair, and peril. Just before writing this letter, Paul and Timothy had gone through incredible hardships. Their trouble was so severe, Paul writes, We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. We despaired of life itself. He says that we felt that we'd received the sentence of death. Paul talks about them being in deadly peril. Their lives were on the line to such a great degree that they had given up all hope. Paul knew what trouble was. During his ministry as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he suffered much. Paul speaks further about that in 2 Corinthians 11. Paul worked much harder than others. He suffered more imprisonments, countless beatings, and was often near death. Five times he received the 40 lashes minus one. That kind of beating was known to kill or maim people. Three times he was beaten with rods, one stoned, three times shipwrecked. A night and a day he was adrift at sea. Paul was constantly on the move, in danger from rivers, robbers, his own people, Gentiles, in the city, in the wilderness, at sea, and from false brothers. He endured toil and hardship. He suffered many a sleepless night. He was often without food, in cold and exposure. From the physical side, Paul knew pain and trouble beyond what most of us could ever imagine. Yet there was something even more painful for Paul than that. Paul says, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for the churches. People inflicted much more pain on Paul than whips and rods and stones ever could. People have the ability to wound and hurt to disappoint and disillusion. Paul had preached the gospel in Corinth for some 18 months. He had helped to establish the church there. After his departure, he remained in touch with the believers in Corinth. Because of problems in this church, Paul wrote to them his first letter. Yet it appears that there were some in the church who had not appreciated Paul's letter. Some of the people who had become leaders were puffed up with arrogance and conceit. They thought highly of themselves because some of the special gifts God had given them. In the early church, the Bible was not yet complete. God spoke to people through visions. To some, he gave the ability to prophesy. To others, he gave the power to perform miraculous healings. Some had the ability to speak in tongues, others to interpret tongues. Yet instead of using these gifts... For the edification of the church, people used them to draw attention and glory for themselves. In 2 Corinthians 1, it appears that Paul has come under fire from these self-promoting leaders in the church. Their issue was that Paul had promised to visit them on his missionary journey, and that he didn't deliver on his promise. They were charging that Paul was two-faced, that he was unreliable and not worthy of their trust. Why should the church of Corinth listen to anything Paul had to say if he could not even keep a simple promise to come and see them? Much of 2 Corinthians 1 is an answer to this charge. Paul explains the terrible sufferings he and Timothy endured for the sake of the gospel. In verse 12, Paul writes that their conscience testifies they have conducted themselves with holiness and sincerity in the world, and especially in their relationship with the Corinthian church. Paul's intention was indeed to visit them on the way back from Macedonia, so they might have a second experience of grace when he visited with them again. Paul explains he was not double-minded about his intentions to visit, saying, yes, one moment, and no, the next. At the end of the chapter, Paul says, but I call God to witness against me, It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. If Paul had come to Corinth at that time, he would have had to severely admonish the church for its many sins. He did not want to make another painful visit. Instead, he wrote them another letter to address the problems, so that when he visited, they could all rejoice together. It's in this context of extreme hardships Paul had undergone and all the struggles facing the Corinthian church that Paul writes about the comfort we may draw from knowing our triune God. We saw earlier that in the opening verses of this letter, Paul uses five different words to describe the trouble he was facing. But in verses 3 to 11, he also uses one word, Ten times, the word comfort. Despite going through some of the most severe trials of his life, Paul speaks of the tremendous comfort we can find in God. Paul writes, Bless me, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort." who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. In these verses, Paul points out that our Heavenly Father is the God of all comfort. True comfort is only to be found in Him and in His gifts. What is it about God the Father that gives us such great comfort. God is not an image built by human hands or an idea thought of by human minds. When Paul preached in the Areopagus, he made it clear God is not an image made by human skill and imagination. Paul encouraged the people of Athens to seek the Lord. He said that God is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. God the Father is our creator. Our existence and our daily lives depend on him. The psalmist makes clear God's nearness and care in Psalm 33. He says, The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, throne he looks out. On all the inhabitants of the earth, he who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. He notes that the eyes of the Lord, that the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our God, beloved, is not some distant figure who has no interest in the world he has created. He is intimately aware of everything that happens on this earth. He is concerned about each of the creatures he has made. God demonstrated his love by making a covenant with the children of Israel. He promised to be their God. He claimed them as his own people. To them, God promised redemption. He promised he would open the way for them to be restored to full communion with him. These promises found their fulfillment in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In him the Emmanuel promise is fulfilled. For the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Christ, God assumed human flesh. Imagine the infinite and eternal God, the creator and preserver of all of life, coming down to earth and dwelling in the midst of sinful people. Christ humbled himself. He gave up his divine power and glory in order to come in human flesh to serve as our mediator. It's through Christ's sacrifice of his body and blood that God adopted us as his children. Paul speaks about this in Galatians 3 and 4. He says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. God sent forth his Son to redeem us, that we might receive adoption as his sons and daughters. And because we are God's children, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. The point is, God has made Himself known to us as our Father. He draws us into a trust relationship with Him. Love and ponder on the father-child relationship for a moment. Fathers are involved in the creation of a new life. There's a blood bond between them and their children. As earthly fathers, we love our children. We make many sacrifices in life to provide for our children's needs, to care for them, to be there for them. We need to acknowledge that as earthly fathers, we love and care for our children with weaknesses and shortcomings. At times, fathers fail miserably. Our poor example can give our kids a distorted image of what God, our Heavenly Father, is actually like. Yet we may know God is perfect. His love for His children is everlasting. God is good. And every good and perfect gift comes from above. As our Father, God provides abundantly for all our needs. He tells us to look at how he dresses the flowers and how he feeds the birds. But he assures us that we are much more valuable to him than them. We have the rich assurance of Psalm 27, verse 10 that although our father and mother may forsake me, God will take me in. What a comfort it must have been to Paul and Timothy to know God as their father in all the distress and the hardship they faced. They wanted to communicate God's love and his sustaining care to the Corinthian church. Their goal was that both the Corinthians then and we today might know God as the Father of all comfort. This brings us to our second point, our comfort from knowing God as our Savior. Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity. He is the only begotten Son of God. What this means is that Jesus has a different connection to the Father than we do. We are God's adopted children, but Jesus is the eternal, natural Son of God. He has always been and will always be, together with the Father and the Spirit. Jesus Christ is true and eternal God. We derive great comfort from knowing Jesus Christ as our Savior. Paul writes about that in 2 Corinthians 1. He writes, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. This idea of sharing with Christ in his sufferings, so we may also share in his glory, is mentioned more often in Scripture. But the central point that Paul makes here is that it is through Christ that we may share abundantly in comfort. Our comfort is founded It's based on what Jesus Christ has done for us. Jesus Christ is the root, the source of true comfort in life. Do you know what it is that allows us to draw so much comfort from knowing Christ as our Savior? To understand this, we need to know what Christ has done for us. Peter writes about that in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. He stresses the importance of knowing that that, that we were ransomed from our sins, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This, beloved, is the good news of salvation. Jesus Christ has paid the price for our sins, that we might be restored to righteousness and to life again. He's made it possible for us to be reconciled with God, to know him, to live in communion with him. How is it that Christ has ransomed us? The answer lies in the cross. Jesus came into this world with a very specific purpose. He came to offer up his body and blood as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus did this willingly. He's the good shepherd who gave his life for his sheep. He voluntarily laid down his life for us. It's in Christ's sacrificial death that we find our comfort. He's paid the price to save us from our sins. By paying the price to redeem us, Christ has claimed us as his own. He has bought us with his precious blood. We now belong to him. We're his precious possession. Once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Beloved, consider our privileged position. We're God's treasured people, the apple of his eye. Do you think God would ever let anyone sever our bond with him? If Christ has claimed us as his own, as our God, he'll never let us go. Part of Christ's work as our Savior is that he's delivered us from the power of Satan. That's not to say that Satan cannot tempt us or influence us in our daily lives. Yet he's no longer in charge of anyone whom Christ has claimed as his own. 1 John 3 verse 8 tells us, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. With his death and resurrection, Christ has won the victory over Satan. When he ascended into heaven, all authority in heaven and on earth were given to him. Satan may tempt us, but he no longer has mastery over us. We are secure in the arms of our Savior. Satan can do nothing without his permission and will. Christ has even freed us from the power of death. With the fall into sin, death entered into the world. We were separated from God and came under His curse. Paul writes in Romans six twenty three that the wages of sin is death. Death was a symbol of the power of sin, a symbol of eternal separation from God. Yet God's love in Christ has overcome this. In 1 John four sixteen, the apostle writes, we have come to know and to believe the love God has for us. He teaches us that perfect love casts out fear and tells us that because of God's love, we may have confidence on the day of judgment. Because of our Savior's work, God will declare us righteous on the final day and allow us to share in eternal joy and glory. Belonging to Christ gives us great comfort. It gives us the assurance our sins are forgiven, that Satan's mastery over us is broken, that we have eternal life. This brings us to our final point our comfort from knowing God as our sanctifier. Together with the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit is true and eternal God. It's important to understand this. When we say that we believe in the Holy Spirit, we're saying that we believe that He is God. The Spirit is not just some supernatural power. He's God. We may trust in and depend on him. Together with the Father and the Son, the Spirit is to be worshipped and adored. The Spirit plays an important role in our lives. He was involved in our creation. Genesis 2, verse 7 says: Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living creature according to this text man became a living being when god breathed into his nostrils the breath of life what is this breath and where does it come from job 33 verse 4 says the spirit of god has made me and the breath of the almighty gives me life It's clear that the Spirit is man's life-giver. Yet the Spirit has not only given us physical life, He also gives us new life spiritually. He sanctifies us. That means He cleanses us from our sins and makes us into a new creation. The Holy Spirit is the only one who can work repentance and renewal in people's hearts and lives. I want to give you a few examples. Near the end of Jesus' ministry on earth, the people around Jerusalem cried out against Jesus, saying, away with this man and crucify him. Fifty days later, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached a sermon about the risen Lord Jesus to these same people. Acts 2, verse 37 notes their response. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter called on them to repent. 3,000 people repented and believed. They studied the scriptures together and broke bread. They sold their possessions in order to provide for those who were in need. What a change from hardness of heart to repentance and conversion, from murdering the Christ to loving their brothers and sisters. And why this dramatic change? because the Holy Spirit was poured out. Holy God came to make his home in sinful hearts. That brought about radical change. You see the same take place in 1 Corinthians 6. The Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul goes on to say, and such were some of you. Prior to the gospel coming to Corinth, the people there lived in darkness, in slavery to sin and Satan. But then something marvelous happened. The gospel was preached and the Spirit worked. Paul explains saying, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The effect of the Spirit making his home in the Corinthians' hearts was profound. They were washed by the blood of Christ and made holy. By His Spirit. In Galatians 5, Paul contrasts the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. The works of the flesh include sexual immorality, impurity, strife, jealousy, anger, and the like. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When the Spirit comes to make his home in us, he changes us. He helps us to more and more hate our sins and flee from them. He begins a new work in us so that more and more we image Christ in how we live our daily lives. What comfort we may derive from knowing the Holy Spirit as the Lord and the giver of life enables us to live in close communion with our God. Beloved God has revealed himself to us in his word as one true and eternal God, consisting of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What a blessing that we may know him. Obviously, our understanding of God is limited, For our God is majestic and glorious, far beyond our understanding. His thoughts and his ways are beyond our comprehension. And yet, we may truly know him. For God has promised himself to us. He did so to each one of us personally At our baptism, we may know him as a faithful father who loves and cares for us. We may know him as loving son who gave up his life for our sake. We may know him as a renewing spirit who grants us life with God. Praise be to our triune God, for he is the God of our salvation. Amen.